Welcome back to Ending the Myth. I'm Brian. And I'm Munya. And we're back with a very special episode. We're here to talk about the movies. How you doing, Munya? Oh, I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. I'm fresh off of my popcorn. I got some special popcorn up in Lake Placid. Uh, you know, that's why I did East Coast snowboarding. And they were they had this little cutesy town. And, you know, we there's a specialty popcorn shop, a place that you can really only find in like a town like this where they just like a shop that's specifically made for popcorn. And so I I got my good old popcorn, my sea salt popcorn, my chocolate mixed popcorn. And, you know, I, I watched a few yeah. movies today. And I can see uh, Munya, he's fresh from the movies. His fingers are just glistening with popcorn butter right now. I'm like wiping the, I'm wiping them on my shirt. Like yeah. in, he's know, doing like ASMR right now for everybody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Munya, we're joined today to talk about the movies by uh, with a very special guest, a you know, ten year veteran of Hollywood, of Hollyweird, one of our as big he likes kids. to call it. Um, yeah, Hollyweird. He has worked in such films as Interstellar, Fast 7, Straight Outta Ooh. Compton, Gone Girl. He had Classic. a brief but starring role on Nathan For You. Uh, he's the producer of the 2022 military comedy War Muffin, streaming everywhere right now. Uh, make sure you go out and watch it. Greg Ryan, how are you doing today? Welcome to the pod. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, giving me this platform to finally expose the sickos. <laughs> we're here for you because the deep state media obviously is not going to do it. So, you know, we're, we're here to be your platform. Yeah, we're here to do the Brian Singer report. Uh, Greg, go off. No. Um... <laughs> Hollywood is the last frontier. And oh, yeah, I forgot to mention that I did work with Brian Singer. So that, that credit you didn't get in my intro there. But, oh, uh... I know. A total missed opportunity. Uh, Greg, for those that are not aware, who do not listen to the regular Seattle Sucks or Mechanical Freak podcast, uh, Greg, you've worked in the industry for a little bit now as a, a behind-the-scenes guy. You've explained your job to me about 10 times. I don't think I've ever quite understood it what matter. it is you do. <laughs> yeah. It mainly seems to be waiting at craft services to get food. That, that's the thing you most excitedly tell me about. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, that sums it up pretty much. I mean, <laughs> uh, it takes a bunch of people to to put something in front of a camera. It's boring. <laughs> oh, thanks for that thrilling look into the world of Hollywood. <laughs> well, uh, we brought Greg on so we could talk a little bit about the movies. Uh, we wanted to have a real pro, a pro from Dover, if we will, in the studio with <laughs> us. And uh, I, I kind of pitched this idea with no real idea of where to go with it. I pitched it to Munya and then to you, Greg, about talking about the movies, you know, sort of during and post Vietnam that are what I like to call FTA movies or fuck the army movies. Now, FTA was a, a little tour that was done for the troops in Vietnam called Fun Travel and Adventure officially, unofficially, <laughs> as everybody knew, was the Fuck the Army tour, uh, where uh, leading anti-war celebrities and other guests would go and entertain troops outside of bases and unofficial, uh, you know, presentations. Uh, so soldiers could uh, get their yayas out complaining about the military oh. and about the war. One of the things that came out of this was sort of this genre of film that had kind of already existed prior to this, but it had to do flavor post-Vietnam. We'll get into that a little bit later, but it's the movie that kind of as a premise begins with the army sucks and is stupid. 
And there's two of them that we want to talk about today. One from 1970, uh, the classic Robert Altman classic MASH. And uh, we want to talk about 1981 Southern Comfort. But, you know, before we get to Southern Comfort, let's uh, let's hear Let's get a little bit of this trailer from MASH. This is the story of two indispensable military surgeons. They had the army over a barrel. But did they take advantage of it? Yes. MASH, a motion picture that raises some important moral questions. And then it drops them. What are you two hoodlums doing in this hospital? Well, what's the matter with her today? Look, Mother, I want to go to work in one hour. We are the pros from Dover. Somebody get that dirty old man out of this operating theater. And then give me at least one nurse who knows how to work in close without getting her tits in my way. I wonder how a degenerated person like that could have reached a position of responsibility in the Army Medical Corps. He was drafted. For our average listener who is between the ages of 12 and 22, you're probably unfamiliar with the film mash uh it was released in 1970 it's the story of a group of army surgeons getting up to hijinks in a medical unit near the front line of the biggest air quotes possible korean war uh (laughs) an enormous (laughs) it was an enormous hit when it came out it was the high uh, third highest grossing film of 1970 it was nominated for best picture Uh, It was so popular, it spawned a TV show that ran for 11 years, notably longer than the Korean War itself, not quite as long as Vietnam. It was so wildly popular that for people of a certain age, and by certain age, I, of course, mean me at 40 years old and Greg as an elder millennial himself, it's essentially seared into our brains. uh, It was off the air before we were born. Yeah, but I watched it every day as a kid. I mean, uh, the MASH finale was actually, I think, the most watched per capita show that's ever been aired that isn't the Super Bowl on TV, Uh, which, by the way, the MASH finale is insane. We won't get into it, but it's insane. Anybody who's psychotic. Yeah, yeah, anybody who's never (laughs) seen MASH should just watch the MASH finale. Uh, It'll leave you with a really interesting take on the show. Uh, But yeah, this brings us to our first question, uh, which is Munya, young Munya. What's up? <laughs> what do you think of um, Yeah, so to give context, I have no context of MASH whatsoever. Like, I, <laughs> my biggest memory of MASH actually is when I was, um, you know, scrolling, scrolling like, you know, the TV guide, like on Comcast and like looking for like uh, football, like, you know, sun- <laughs> Sunday afternoon football. And I was like maybe an hour too early and I see uh, MASH playing. It's actually an hour too late because they were playing that in prime time. So I always remember seeing like M star, A star, blah, blah, blah. And I always thought that that was like a really interesting title, like just so weird. But I kind of always got annoyed when I saw it because that meant that I'm not watching football. And I just (laughs) I'm watching this like show that's continuously on forever. So I've never tuned in once to it. So I, I and I've never seen the movie. So I truly when I uh, stepped into this movie, I had no idea what I was getting. I didn't know if I was getting just a very serious, like, you know, military movie from the 70s. I didn't know, like, really what, like, you know, the director was, like, trying. I, I didn't know if this was supposed to be serious or funny when, like, the, for the first, like, one minute of it, right? Like, I, yeah. I truly didn't know what I was getting into. So come to find out that it was about these, like, uh, these little, like, uh, whimsical tricksters you know like these kind of like uh <laughs> these these jokesters uh pranksters mm-hmm. you know who uh happen to be insanely good surgeons you know and and like uh 
they're stationed in the army. But like the thing is, like this movie is just based on the base. Like you're not seeing any like military combat. You're just seeing like wounded soldiers kind of coming back, and these these guys who like play some pretty cruel pl- pranks on people also just have and like steal like uh, jeeps that happen <laughs> to be like these like just guys who are like fix them up. But like that's like kind of the whole movie for me, and I, that, that was like. It was interesting, you know, so um, I, I, I uh, enjoyed it. But at times, because I just don't have context, I was like, and it, because it was in the 70s, I'm like, uh, is this serious? Like, are, are people like watching this and being like, damn, like, yeah, you know, or, or is like everyone in on this joke? Like, you know, I, I it, it was such a it was such an interesting experience for me. But, um, you know, reading it the way I'm reading it, I think I think. I'm thinking that this is a uh, comedy meant to make fun of the military. Um, I, I don't know. I honestly, honest to God, I don't know if like people got the joke at the time or not, or, you know, it was nominated for an Oscar. All of those are like signifying that that might actually be like, you know, people were cool, but at the same time, the Vietnam war was pretty <laughs> unpopular, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know because I, cause I'm used to like whenever like a military movie is nominated nowadays, like the Iraq war onwards, you can't really break into like mainstream without it being like a serious, like DOD approved script. Right. And so that's kind of the perspective that I'm coming with, but maybe, you know, the seventies was just different where you can actually break into the mainstream and mainstream success on that level by like making fun of the military. I don't know. But um, yeah, no, I thought, I thought it was interesting. It was interesting how it was kind of just like shot in one place about these two, like, you know, uh, pranksters, these cruel pranksters, um, and then the football scene at the end. I mean, wow! Like, what a what a way to <laughs> turns what out a way it to was top football it all along. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, no that that was that was something else, man. It was like <laughs> it, it it was a it was it was fresh to watch it. It was honestly pretty fresh. Um, nice, but, nice. You know, uh, fresh would, but confusing at the same time. What would be your rating? How many out of four wagon wheels? What do you give it? Ooh, okay. I'd say like I, I'd say it's. Out of four wagon wheels, I'd say it's three and a half. Like the, the wagon is going, but it might be a bumpy road at some point. That's a, that's, that's what it is for me. Bumpy road ahead. That's a, that's a good yeah. uh, note for this show. Um, <laughs> but uh, Greg, uh, maybe you can fill us in a little bit of you know the background of Mash getting made. Uh, it's sort of context, etc. Yeah, well, I you know I just I, I like Munya's take that. Mash was the zero dark thirty of its time. I think that makes a lot of sense. It did receive a um, ton in, of Defense Department funding. I know that in, inscrutable military <laughs> title um, is just the start of it. You know, all the laughs. Uh, also, just to bring this up, like you know, it did end in like nineteen eighty two or something. Um, mm. The show, but like. Munya's um experience of like turning on the TV and just like n- just always finding mash on is this real phenomenon where like in in the 90s into the 2000s um this was such a insanely popular show and there's so many episodes that it was like the most like syndicated show of all time so there was like a period of like many many years where if you had basic cable you could basically find mash on some channel 24 hours a day like so it was like it yeah. truly felt like it was always on like it it was mm-hmm. crazy and this is the late aughts too that i'm yeah. talking yeah. about like you know like this is like 2007 like that it, it was crazy so yeah, it was definitely uh the only show my dad liked so it was literally always on in our house which is how i watched so much of it 
Yeah. Um, so, but, you know, we're talking about the movie, which is uh, 1970. It is so popular that it spawns the show. But, you know, I think we can kind of leave the show behind for now because, like, it's too much to talk about. The movie is enough. That's what we watched. And um, I think you you mentioned, Brian, that it, you know, this is a MASH stands for Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. It takes place at this this mobile hospital in Korea, as you mentioned, Brian, 1952, the Korean Peninsula, uh, UN forces uh, uh, fighting off the uh, the North Korean communist menace. Are you guys? Have you guys? Are you guys aware? Did it occur to you watching this, however, <laughs> that um, being that this was made in 1970, this movie might actually be about vietnam hmm. oh my god hmm. this is you know this is why i love to bring a pro on because you get that sort of subtext that you know you maybe didn't catch the first time you watched a movie uh, trust me as somebody who watched this show all the time as a kid i was probably like 12 years old before i realized the, sh- the tv show was about korea like that. it was about korea I, yeah yeah i always interpreted it as being about vietnam and i think at the time uh people well, did for as well. us <laughs> later after mm-hmm. this time after the vietnam war in the, the 90s, and we're watching this 24 hours a day on TV, by this time, the Korean War is the Forgotten War. Yeah. And as you guys have talked about the last few episodes, and I think we're going to get into today, Vietnam is this never healed, like, gash in the skull of America that, mm-hmm. like, is permeates everything so yeah you see this come on tv you know american service people in a a war in east asia you know yeah it's vietnam you know yeah um and that is sort of the fundamental thing that is remembered about viet about uh mash like you can't no one will talk about this movie if you you read about it anytime you read a blurb in your you know people magazines 100 greatest films of all time you know like or if you i'm sure if you watch the 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 dvd special features if you watched it introduced by nick clooney or bob dorian on amc in the 90s i'm sure the first thing they said was did you know this was actually uh, about vietnam which was in 1970 a very touchy subject that you know uh everybody was talking about vietnam in 1970 <laughs> ah but not making movies about it and this yep. is true and this is what they'll always point out is that there weren't a lot of movies being made directly about vietnam there's a couple uh the green beret which is like an insane uh nationalist fantasia with uh john John wayne Wayne. there's the sort of much more ambiguous uh politics of uh go tell the spartans jerry lemke favorite but like there's not a lot of of this going on and that that's like key to the whole thing and and it is true, like it is true just on its face that, yes, on some basic level, this uh, was really a movie about Vietnam in that that's how the filmmakers certainly saw it, which is what you will hear talked about. You'll hear, you know, they'll say, well, like the that Robert Altman, the great Robert Altman, this is kind of the movie that put him on the map, like went out with this script um, that was based on a book by a guy who was a surgeon at a mash hospital wrote like a memoir ish novel 
uh, about his experience, which we should come back to when we get to like the the class nature of uh, Mash. But um, and but then he took the script and kind of threw Ring Lardner Jr.'s script out the window and made this thing that was the even more reverent than the book and and was really about Vietnam and kind of bamboozled uh you know the the powers that be the man into like making this uh movie that was critical of the war and uh that was like showing uh Vietnam in your movie theater near you but like under this like thin veil of it being about this other war no one gave a shit about anymore and as we'll talk about, that's true on some basic level. I think we should also remember as we talk about that, and if you go to watch this, like that maybe we should be skeptical looking back on the myths about Vietnam. Like as you talked about with Jerry Lemke, you know, a couple of weeks ago, like the reactionary myths are, you know, insane and like uh, don't really add up. That's probably true also of the liberal and even anti-war myths of the time, something we can get back to. But like, at least like, you know, let's keep that in mind about like how these people may have saw what they were doing and then how the culture has metabolized this after and and held mash up as this touchstone of like cinema, a critical of the war is maybe something to have a little skepticism about. So, you know. I started with all this skepticism, but like I'm now reminded that I should go back and say, like, I love this fucking movie. Uh, I discovered this <laughs> as a teen. I probably have seen it like 75 times. I think it totally held up when we watched it the other day, Brian. It's a mm-hmm. it's a classic for a reason. It's great. So, you know, that said, like the first thing to talk about, if we're going to sort of uh, deconstruct the the political narrative around this movie is that like the studio as well as the filmmakers also understood that this movie was about Vietnam. Um, (laughs) And if they're not the man in this situation, I don't know who is, you know, (laughs) the studio wanted to be able to do uh, a military comedy. You, you alluded to this earlier, Brian, but like, The military comedy is this thing that goes back a long way, at least to the Second World War. And it's like aftermath of like a genre that is like a totally integrated and easily metabolized way to talk about like uh, how shitty it is being in the army and the war, you know? Mm -hmm. So you have um, uh, the Beetle Bailey comics, which run from, you know, the post-world war ii forever but are especially popular like you know in the in the 50s and 60s um in the the starting in the, like the late 50s you know you get maybe it's the early 50s you get in early television you get mikhail's navy with ernest borgnine uh, which is about like a uh world war ii in the pacific like a a patrol boat a pt boat captain played by ernest borgnine and his crew of like you know misfits who are always getting into trouble and having goofs and then there'll be like a random action sequence where they go like easily torpedo a Japanese sub. Um, (laughs) And then the Phil Silver show, which where the comedian Phil Silvers plays uh, Sergeant Bilko, which maybe some of you remember seeing a trailer for the Steve Martin, uh, Phil Hartman comedy in like the late nineties. That was based on this show for some reason, this totally forgotten show about a, 
a motor pool uh, sergeant who like also like runs scams and gambling and like then there's Gomer Pyle USMC uh, Gomer Pyle being the gas station attendant from Mayberry who was one of these sitcom characters who becomes like so popular like because of his own because of his just how uh, endlessly charismatic he and his uh, moronic catchphrase are that he needed his own show, you know, cause he was starting to overshadow Andy Griffith probably. Um, so he, so they're like, what can we do with this, uh, this moron Gomer pile? Ah, let's put him in the Marines, you know, that'll be funny. And so you have, uh, you know, then the weirdest one, the late, you know, sixties version Hogan's heroes, which is sort of the <laughs> most, the strangest and most interesting, but hey, like this, what's well, not funny about a Nazi prison camp. I mean, yeah. come on. <laughs> <laughs> this is, like um i think that that is like key to understand is that like this is part of like so beetle bailey which is the cartoon about like a private in the army like getting up to hijinks and about how like goofy and inefficient and all of this how like sometimes kafka-esque um being in the army is oh it's the bad food the the sitting around the 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 boondoggle of it all you know Beetle Bailey comics literally ran for for decades in Stars and Stripes, the army magazine. Yeah. So that should tell you that, like, the military comedy is actually like this totally metabolized part of the Imperial War machine. Being in World War Two was this in for I mean, most people who served didn't even see combat. Right. They were in the rear echelons uh, of just all the all the infrastructure that kept like this uh, war moving, this very uh, easily prosecuted war um, moving uh, for the, the Western allies, you know, part of that is being able to make fun of what a ridiculous boondoggle this is provided, you know, you have um, like a populace that's behind you in the war that the, the serving men like actually, you know, feel like, even if this is stupid, like it's probably not the worst thing that I'm here. Maybe there's some patriotic or ideological reason to do it at some point. Like um, there's no one's really mutinying. So you can make fun of the the ludicrousness of being in a giant like imperial military uh, and mm-hmm. and fighting that war. It's, yeah, we're still all having fun in the war, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so jokes can be had. It's when exactly. the worm turns that things get different. <laughs> so uh, Fox, 20th Century Fox, like, I think wanted to do a military comedy. But the ones about World War II were getting stale. Like, they were for the guys who came back, you know, for a generation of men who came back. And, like, they want to do them. They're, it's on their list of, like, projects to do is um, military comedies. But... but Post-1968, post-Tet, after Cronkite comes out and says, like, this kind of looks like a pile of shit, huh? Um, Mm -hmm. As the, as there starts to be, like, public opposition to the war, if you're looking to yourself, man, all these guys are coming back from Vietnam, we would like to do a movie for this market, a military comedy, a very popular thing we've been doing for decades, but how do we make fun of this war in a way that is legible to these guys coming home and then, you know, to the broader audience who understands what's going on. 
Well, we can't do it directly because Vietnam's too touchy. To put it another way, or, or like, I think the, the way it's Masters remembered is like, well, oh, you couldn't talk about Vietnam like in a major motion picture. Another way to look at it is that the guys at Fox, the Xanax, uh, who ran Fox for decades, who founded it, you know, uh, the elder Xanax, they're, you know, your basic like American nationalists. They're they're reactionaries. They are the studio who did the big war pictures. They did a big World War II movie every year, and sometimes they were real big ones, uh, full on Oscar bait. Um, so, like uh, the same year as Mash, they also did. Uh, they also put out Patton. Um, and Munya, you you watched the first uh, the opening scene of Patton, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Have any thoughts coming off of that? (laughs) Very different vibe. Um... (laughs) Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. Americans play to win all the time. I wouldn't give a hoot in hell for a man who lost and laughed. That's why Americans have never lost and will never lose a war, because the very thought of losing is hateful to Americans. It was pretty serious, uh, it seemed. Uh, I don't think I would really want to sit through that if I, if that was like an indication of anything. But, you know, it seems like a very more, much more like serious war movie to me, uh, like just from that. Alone. Indeed. Well, yeah. And the first uh, words of the movie are uh, no man ever won a war by dying for his country. You win a war by making the other guy die for his country, which is a little different vibe than the Jeep stealing joke you get at the beginning. Yeah, of the no, I mean, yeah. like and he, he was saying that the United States has never lost a war. And God damn, I'd, I'd be damned if we ever do lose a war. Like we're the greatest country on earth, blah, blah, blah. Right. Like it was oh. it was that type of speech. Yeah. Well, actually, and Brian, actually, the first words in MASH are on the screen they're not spoken but they're macarthur yeah they're yeah. they're macarthur's words from his farewell speech to congress which yeah. all eerily yeah. parallels and i actually think i think they i that may have actually been put in knowing how like having seen the script for Patton, um in like kind of uh, a joke like actually mm-hmm. lampooning Patton. um so like this this is the same studio putting this out that like does Patton? They 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 do World War II pictures. Like some studios had their specialties. Like your big like uh, MGM would do like your big schmaltzy uh, period or costume dramas or something or like big westerns for years. Um, and Fox would do big World War II pictures. Sometimes more uh, corny, sometimes more serious. Like in '63, they put out The Longest Day from the based on the uh, Cornelius Ryan book. But they would do big budget ones, tanks, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. really like ca- trying to capture visually like this this war. And they, they were keeping this going for decades, you know, like so come around to 1970. They're having this feeling about like wanting to they're they're experiencing this moment where like they can't directly talk about Vietnam in the most natural ways because it's becoming this hugely divisive issue. Right. But they respond to this in a couple of ways. And continue to talk about Patton a little because Patton is very interesting in that it's a movie they, the Xanax said when they, after Patton, or like looking back in interviews much later, like again on the DVD special features, they'll say, like, we wanted to make a movie about Patton for years and we just couldn't get it right. 
and uh, or it just didn't seem like the right time. And what they mean is that Patton was a really divisive figure himself. Um, he was, and the movie is basically this weird nationalist rehabilitation of this figure who was basically discredited during the war in what you could constitute as like an early salvo of cult of the culture war we know today. Mm. Um, and one that is like eerily centered on the awkward position America found itself in world war two, which is to say fighting the Nazis instead of the Soviet union. And Patton, if you watch the movie, you can see it. it it's basically just, a, it basically teaches the controversy, uh, the script by uh, <laughs> Coppola, because it shows him like, it the the opening is this like psychedelic rendering of basically all of the insane quotes of the man that Coppola couldn't jam into actual scenes in the script so he's just like fuck it I'll just have him say all this as if it's a speech in front of a giant American flag and you should be if you really want to get what Coppola was getting to in the script you should be like basically seeing that the American flag is uh, might as well be a giant swastika. Um, mm -hmm. But of course, Fox, Fox actually threw that out years earlier. They're like, what the fuck is this? And they tossed the script that didn't have any <laughs> battle scenes. It's all just like all these scenes from these, from journalist accounts, from the various books written of him saying crazy shit. Cause he was this wacky fucking weird ass guy. And, and so he just crams like all the weirdest shit. Um, simple as like, you know, in the beginning, he refers to American and allied prosecution of the war as murdering the Germans. And, you know, when question on this, we be like, well, yeah, we're going to go murder them. That's what I'm doing. And, you know, you can imagine like the War Department and Marshall and Eisenhower going like, George, like we don't call war murder anymore, you know, like. But then, it, <laughs> yeah. you know, later he like slaps a soldier who's like has um, uh, shell shock, you know, uh, and this becomes this media thing. And then, you know, what he gets like denounced in the media for slapping one of our boys, you know, and cursing at him. Also, all the cursing is replaced. When he says like fornicating in the movie, that's fucking. And when he says uh, uh, crap in the movie and it sounds really awkward, obviously he's saying shit, you know. Um, and so he would swear in front of uh, journalists. Then he would also, uh, you know, as time went on, he's the guy who at least in the media, because he talked about it out loud, he was the, the closest there was ever like a controversy in the media about putting uh, the Nazis back in charge of running Germany. Um, <laughs> that was because Patton would say like, well, yeah, we got to put, uh, we got to put all these guys back. Now, you know, that included things like, which nobody was really, was not getting through the press at the time, but yeah, putting the concentration camp guards back in, he was, you know, military governor yeah. of Bavaria. But he very this controversially didn't... said, uh, you know, well, yeah, they're members of the Nazi party, but that's just like being a member of the Republican or Democratic Party, yep. which uh, listeners mm. of the show will know, uh, give credit to Patton. He was closer to correct than the journalists who got mad at him. And that's the thing. <laughs> this, is a, this is a reactionary who said the quiet part out loud. He then went on to say, like, out loud to journalists, like, yeah, we ought to now get the German army, uh, together I'm, I'm whipping them into shape here i've got them under my command let's turn east and finish what they started in the soviet union let's go you know yeah which 
this is essentially, you know, this is what a lot of American business and ruling class wanted. They liked Germany. They liked Mussolini. They wanted to destroy the Soviet Union. It's this awkward place that he was like a voice of. And this all got very discredited and he was kind of put away and like, don't talk about this guy. But there was always this defense for him, too. Like there were people like rallying around when he would get pilloried in the media. A, essentially a culture war. Mm. Fox always wants to do this. The Xanax want to do this because they like Patton, because for this segment of reactionary America, he's this hero. He was a, he was a competent general. Um, he, yeah, they're you know, like, this is this cool guy, basically. Right. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, exactly. <laughs> well, you no, know, it's, it's literally the thing you get today of like, it's not just he's a cool guy because he actually won his battles unlike some other American generals. But uh he was a cool guy because, you know, he says the tough things that people need to hear. You know, he's not censored. He's, you he's, know, he's like He tells them like he's it banks. is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. you know, he, yeah, he's he's, that he's yeah. he now he was he was a he was a good general. I mean, in a lot of ways, what the Xanax do to him in this movie by creating this weird hagiography is do what like Hitler at the time did to Rommel, you know, a perfectly mm-hmm. like good, decent general, but kind of turn him into like this larger than life figure. Um, and like, that's what they want to do. And they can never do it before. They made a World War II movie every goddamn year since the beginning of World War II. They never did Patton until 1968 when they said, you know what? Fuck it. We're doing Patton. Yeah. Because there's a culture war on. There's people who are criticizing the American empire. There's people who don't want us to fight communism around the world. There's people who there's kids burning their draft cards fucking Cronkite is on TV uh you know saying like this is a lost cause okay so they're like fuck it we do the patent movie and then doesn't matter someone takes Coppola's crazy weird teach the controversy just a bunch of insane quotes scripts and and just does it as if it's a big schmaltzy fox war picture in 70 millimeter and it and it's great George C Scott so that's the same studio who also, at the same time, says we need to do in another way a movie that is a military comedy. Again, this thing totally metabolizable by the imperial military machine, but make it relevant to today to the boys coming home from Vietnam. And that's and that's where you get mash. OK, well, that being said, I mean, what do we think? Uh, so, I mean, that, that sort of explains the studio's motivation. But Robert Altman who, you know, since become a very famous director, you know, uh, one of America's true, like, post-70s auteurs, you know. What do we think his vision was for MASH? Like, what what do you think Robert Altman's trying to say in this movie? Well, I think, like, he also, he also was conscious of the fact that, you know, this was really about Vietnam. Um why why does this work? Why do you pick this movie? Why did the studio pick this movie to do? Well, it's set in Korea, this war that in a many, many, many ways is very, very similar to the Vietnam War. Uh its ostensible purpose, its real purpose, uh containment yeah. <laughs> of of communism, containment of China and the Soviet Union. Uh its actual real the real truth of what it was, which is genocide from the air uh, by American bombers. I mean, and on a superficial level, they look the same. (laughs) It's a war in East East Asia um, where um, uh, American 
and allied troops are in a war zone uh ostensibly defending a local east asian population against um the other half of their country and that looks very much the same so i think what is different about what altman brought to it is he said like well we're going to take you know what they told us to do this script and uh just make it more critical like make it um you know really in the same way that it's really an antithesis to Patton because the reason I you know went into all that about Patton is like that's what the Xanax what Fox was doing with Patton it's a culture war movie um it's about you know it's lionizing the army lionizing mm-hmm. the American empire uh, this hagiography of this figure uh, of American militarism. The uh, MASH is is about tearing all that down, is about um, making the army look ridiculous. And, you know, more than that, like the entire American, like conservative world. Um, it's a military comedy, but it's one made by an edgelord. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, right yeah like no, uh, no, it's, yeah yeah it's it's um where the normal military comedy the one maybe he was asked to go out and make was like oh it's so goofy being in the army what a ridiculous oh the food sucks and like uh my commanding officer's a moron and like uh isn't this a ridiculous situation and isn't war hell you know um but this was like uh isn't isn't conservative america a, a laughable like institution isn't and isn't christian nationalist yeah. america yeah a, especially christian yeah a a uh an institution ripe for derision you know yeah i mean this comes up very early in the script right uh when our two our initial two heroes played by uh donald sutherland and the immortal tom scarrett uh they show up in camp together they this is Hawkeye Pierce and Duke Forrester, unlikely friends, one from the south, one from the north. We'll get into that later. But they uh, go to their tent and they realize they're shacking up with Frank Burns, uh, the you know stitched up, you know, buttons all the way to the top army surgeon uh, who's you know, presumably some sort of lifer. And he's super Christian. He's praying. He's making Hojan, the kid that they have, do their laundry for him, read the Bible to him. And they're all beside themselves. Could this man possibly be serious? This is the most ludicrous thing the two of them have ever encountered. I mean, he actually asks that, right? He says, is this this guy for real? And then they immediately start making fun of his praying. They... Start singing like, like, how long is this gonna go <laughs> and everyone joins in <laughs> come on man <laughs> they then give hojan some reading material which is a playboy and he's like uh, major burns can i go do some reading you know you know I, I i don't know if i can't remember if there's a line of dialogue in the movie though that exposits this but in the book which i've never read but but and also on the show it's even burns is even better because actually he's a reservist Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Which, who, who probably not never thought he would be going to war, but now that he is, like he's taking, he takes 
the thing very seriously. Um, uh, so he's like them. He's like a, a guy who works in a hospital, you know, in the state mm-hmm. somewhere. Um, but he's in the army reserve. Um, so I don't know if that comes up, but, um, but like, uh, yeah, like from the get go, it's not just that the army is this goofy place. It's that American Christian nationalism is, uh, uh, this thing to be made fun of is the target of this movie, which, like I said, makes it basically a culture war movie at this time when the culture is rending apart over Vietnam. So it's, it's a perfect, that's why I think Altman sees like, oh, this is the perfect place to do this. This is the site of culture war. On the other hand, we should also recognize that as a transgressive anti-war movie, like, you know, throwing uh, shit in the face of the man and like as a as an artifact of, you know, protest against the war. When you break it down like that, it sounds a lot lamer. yeah i think the image of culture war is correct and in the key context here is the election of richard nixon right and you know uh for those of you that aren't old enough like me and greg to remember the election no but for those uh, obviously (laughs) don't remember the 68 election nixon's election is is similar in some ways to trump's election in that the republican and the reaction to it too Yeah. yeah and the reaction to it as well right and that the republican party had been building for a decade essentially a new culture war platform that would eventually become known as the southern strategy right yeah where they said instead of talking about issues of class or things like that what we're going to do is we're going to boil everything down all the things that capitalism needs to run the racism the sexism etc that capitalism really needs to function that really makes america tick we're just gonna boil that down into these little culture issues right and that can get middle class americans really riled up about and what's interesting about this dichotomy right of Patton, which I think is a little more complex of a movie, but we can get to that later. But in MASH, what's interesting about that dichotomy is Nixon fucking, as we mentioned before, loved Patton. He watched it. He did not get maybe some of the criticisms, the not so subtle criticism of Patton. He loved it. He thought it was great. He screened it for everybody in the White House. You know, he'd watch it like daily. Yeah. (laughs) He'd quote it in meetings, all that kind of Mm -hmm. weird shit. Uh, no evidence whatsoever that he watched MASH. Um, in MASH, the this the guys in MASH, Donald Sutherland, Tom Skerritt, Elliot Gould, who's another surgeon who shows up, right? They represent everything that Nixon hated and everything that Nixon told middle-class America to hate and who was, like, ruining your lives, which is these elite, you know, guys who went to, like, elite colleges. They have these professional class jobs. They think They think they're better than you. Mm-hmm. And they're all having the time of their lives, like out there yucking it up while you're, you know, doing the hard work or whatever, right? While the real America is, you know. Well, yeah, uh, you're right. You're... <laughs> you know, whatever, right? <laughs> and in that sense, I mean, you know, a lot of people must have viewed Bash at the time with a, a slight sense of horror. There was there was some discussion in the reviews about the, is this the first American film? mocking like the christian faith in this way and stuff i mean Mm -hmm. stuff that seems kind of weird in in retrospect but yeah like um you know that that culture war really burned bright in the viewing of these two movies uh but yeah as as you're saying greg that might hide some um darker truths about mash which is it's anti-war message such that exists is uh seemingly non-existent it's just well, isn't the army a goofy a place? 
Let's see, I mean, see what we get I, to. I think the the most what if a you wanna, wacky place to be. Yeah, yeah. and that is most of it. Uh, I think almost like you, it's fun, you know. Oh, I mean, God, it looks like they're having a fucking blast, man. Yeah. Like, um, I think the most truly subversive thing on a not purely cultural level is the gore. Um, and yeah. this was this was a big deal. So like um pre blood real actual like blood and gore of any more than just maybe a spot on someone's shirt where they got shot was really not a thing up until real recently like bonnie and clyde came out in 67 and that had lots of people getting blown away including uh the famous duo themselves in really gory fashion use of squibs you know like just fucking blood spattering everywhere and this was like really shocking and it was a you know it was a real new turn um so like this was already still like a thing you weren't seeing in most movies and a lot of people had only seen in movies for the first time very recently if they'd seen bonnie and clyde and then maybe a couple other things um at least like you know there were there were uh b movies you know like where you might see some really fake looking blood and you know really corny and often in black and white and the color would often, if you ever did see blood, the part of the, even at some point, the like rules for this meant like it couldn't like be a realistic color. So, mm-hmm. but really like realistic gore, like kind of shocking gore was new. And what, what mash does the way it, the only, the way that it actually connects, because mostly, yeah, it's these guys just goofing off at this like base behind the front lines, the, what connects it to the actual reality of the war is that they're surgeons and, there are scenes in the hospital when they're doing surgery on uh, people who have res- uh, sustained battlefield injuries. And what you see is a lot of blood everywhere. You see blood spurting at points. You see they're they're covered in it like it's there. You know, um, you don't see like uh, like shock shots of like organs like, you know, being handled yeah. or something. But it's like for the time, this was you know pretty different and especially considering it was um you know depicting an american war and that is another thing that connects it to like you know something that was different about vietnam from previous wars is you were seeing it on the news you know the networks were there with cameras and so you would see uh maybe you know not always on the front lines but you might see like uh guys with you know very bloody gauze like getting medevaced um uh, out of a off a landing zone, you know, um, like on the evening news on CBS. So like this was that's probably the most um, the most subversive thing, the most like materially yeah. relevant thing. And it's it's a it's one of the strengths of the movie. And and, uh, you know, that they are continually joking throughout it, that they just have this like, uh, you know, uh, gallows humor uh is part of the fun mm. of the whole thing, you know? Yeah. And it's worth mentioning all the reviews at the time bring up the gore, right? Yeah. I, this was like pretty shocking. Although it's all the reviews say like, you know, it, it's so well justified in the context by Altman that nobody can really like say, like, Oh, he shouldn't have shown this. There's like, it's mm-hmm. crazy that he showed this. I mean, they give you an idea. I think it's the very first surgery scene, which we're meant to understand is maybe day one that Hawkeye and uh, Duke have shown up. 
uh, I think it's Hawkeye casually is handed a hacksaw and just hacks a guy's leg off and you hear the saw in the bone, which is not a normal thing in a like big movie. <laughs> so that, time, that yeah. is the most, that is the most graphic it gets probably. And mm-hmm. that's the first thing. And it, it shocks you right then and there. And it never has to go that far for the rest of the movie. It kind of just shows them. And, but even that, you know, it's not like a close up like gore shot. It's just a very matter of fact. Uh, the whole movie's played in wides, but, um, it's just this very matter of fact thing, but you notice it even today. Like, oh Jesus, he's just casually mm. sawing into this leg, and yeah. um, while having very casual conversation with the nurses, yeah. well, and, well, and sometimes asking, even joking, you know, like with the yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, scratch my nose, <laughs> scratch my nose with the with the hemostat. Yeah, um, yeah, that's that scene, I believe. Um, yeah. yeah, so I think like you can give it credit for that if you're talking about like having an actual, you know subversive like thing to say about the war it's like we're gonna you know it's showing you the real like human cost i think from our view of what that war was like i i which you know we may get into i I think it's still pretty weak but in term look it's a great movie but like in terms of it like being remembered today as this like anti-war document um yeah that's about all it's got going for it okay well maybe before we get into some maybe final thoughts on mash uh, we'd, of course, be remiss if we didn't mention that, uh, like any comedy of its day, it maybe has some potential elements that might rub modern viewers a little bit the wrong way. Um, yeah. Greg, what what are maybe some of the stuff that uh, somebody who, like Munia, just coming to the movie might, might find like a little shocking to see in a uh, just fun comedy about surgeons yucking it up? Yeah, so, you know, we may have, maybe we should have, like, said at the beginning, like, don't go watch this first. Um, We're not, there's no way to spoil this movie. It's unspoilable. So, like, listen to this. Hopefully you haven't gone and watched it. Um, Because, like, some trigger warnings uh, are relevant. Um, I'll just talk about three things, basically. Actually, you know, on on race, um, it's actually, it's actually pretty good. Kind of, kind of charming. I mean, it, again, it's a culture war movie. It is attempting really actually to virtue signal its um coolness about race relations um it comes up mm-hmm. and you know, the movie like very clearly tells you its attitude you could pick apart the reality of whatever that is like uh mm-hmm. of, yeah, of the like Ivy League the, surgeons might yeah, have the, a different the, opinion about bunking with a uh uh right. black uh, the movie leads you is, to believe like yeah. that it's the the southern guy who has like the skepticism is where you know uh Tom Scarrett's like you guys you really wouldn't mind uh shacking up with a you know and like uh <laughs> and they you know they push him over like uh you know good old boy and eventually you know eventually he does I guess decides he has no problem with it um and I guess you're supposed to believe that like yeah, the 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 Massachusetts types uh, <laughs> who went to Harvard and Dartmouth, like well, um, as we learned five 19, years later in, in the busting busting crisis, people in Boston have a great relationship with the yeah, black community. Yeah, <laughs> that these pro- professional class Northerners who you know, like who you know, if they've ever who are even way who's who's um, whose experience is actually probably way more segregated than the than the good old boy. You know, mm. anyway, you could pick that apart. I don't know. The movie, it's not going to trigger you, though. Um, there's yeah, the, a movie, tr- the movie's basic argument is racism is bad. Like, yeah, like yeah. That, it's, it's pretty clear. On that. Very consciously, yeah. you know, um, the there's a charming 
uh, plot about <laughs> a kind of uh, gay panic taken to absurd lengths. Um, like uh, also speaking of absurd <laughs> lengths, like it's uh, the farthest anyone's ever gone for a big dick joke as well. Um, There's a 45 minute long dick joke in this yeah, uh, movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, now in this, like, again, the joke is it is lampooning a kind of ridiculous level of gay panic. Now, built into it is a certain homophobia, right? Um, that is inherent in this. That's not, it's inescapable. And I think um, a contemporary, like, a younger audience could watch it and miss that. And I think, you know, give the movie some credit. It's trying to say, it's trying to do some okay things here. Uh, again, there is some homie homophobia. There's plenty of homophobia built into the logic of it though. Now mm. the, there, um, the sort of the, the, the subplot of in this plotless movie that runs the longest through the whole thing. That's sort of the most like, uh, it may be iconic of the whole movie is uh, what we might call the misogyny plot. Um, <laughs> and it's this like, this is probably where the movie gets dinged the most, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> and fair yeah. enough. Like, so, you know, what we talked about, you know, little what the plot of this, there's no plot of this movie. It's just a setting and some scenes that happen. Mm -hmm. And it's about, you know, the fact that these draft, these Ivy league doctors have been drafted and thus they're thrown into the and given, you know, ranks of captains and they're thrown into this um, uh, war zone where like they basically can do whatever they want um, and goof off. And it's a crazy time. And like that's, you know, so it's a military comedy, but they take it even farther. So, you know, and it's 1952. So they do some realistic things, probably, which is, you know, doctors, nurses, uh, the army the 1950s uh they treat i mean the whole misogyny runs through the whole thing but they treat one character in particular uh the one of the objects of their like anti-army anti-nationalist anti-christian derision extremely badly um like really to the point uh you know constant sexual harassment sexual humiliation sexual assault and, you know, at least on one level, the most important level, the level that is shown in the trailer, uh, <laughs> this is meant for you to just laugh at. And uh, that yeah. can be kind of hard to watch. And it can kind of uh, it kind of takes us a lot of the runtime into a joke that you can't really laugh at because um, it's really horrifying. Now, at the same time. You know, if we want to ask if we can give the movie any credit, I think like um, it there is an I think there may be another level at work here where if you really watch Sally Kellerman's performance, uh, she really reacts to this stuff each time in like actually a very honest way in that she's extremely traumatized and angered. And this is the hardest part because the movie is asking you to laugh even at that. Um at the same time, as a modern audience, as a contemporary audience, it might be hard to see this, but like it's her performance isn't actually what you might expect. Having seen, you know, knowing that this is the 1970 and it's about the 50s, like the misogyny is just like taken for granted a lot of the time in old movies. Just showing her really profound 
traumatized reaction, I think, is a deliberate choice to tell some kind of truth about this kind of misogyny and this behavior. And uh, so at least, you know, if you're watching it, you know, look for that and try to uh, maybe try to appreciate Sally Kellerman's performance at least. And then beyond that also, I think it kind of gets lost because there's no plot to any of this, but like she really tries to get recourse to it and actually shows her trying to, uh, to like achieve some kind of uh, let's say accountability she tries to make some changes she tries to you know speak to the manager uh she tries to speak to (laughs) she is she does outrank these guys and tries to go to the commanding officer tries to write a letter up the chain because her commanding officer just blows her off and at every stage she just gets blown off by the chain of command there's you like even when like a higher officer a, a bird colonel has to come in like partly because like she's written this letter that's like you know making these executions he has to like actually come by and basically you kind of understand that's one of the reasons he's there but the next scene is like he's just sitting around the tent having beers with the guys who did the crimes that he's there to like have to like come ask about and by the end of it he's calling her hot lips as well and then the next conversation is like hey we should have a the his guy under his command we should have a football game and okay weren't we supposed to talk about this this letter that was read like that was written to you and he's like i screw her you know yeah there's a truth in that as well that i so i do think actually the movie is trying to show some kind of truthful uh thing there to you that you that you might not mi- that you might miss because without seeing like how maybe out of place it would be at this time at the same time it is asking you also to laugh at the repeated like sexual humiliation of this this woman so be aware of that don't feel like you have to laugh at those parts um but there is something interesting going on there you know yeah well you know we could spend probably a whole episode (laughs) dissecting the complex uh sexism of mash uh but to bring it back to i think the main point that we want to kind of get into And I think this is the sort of big question about the movie. We talked about sort of this culture war almost artifact. And I think the question is, what does this movie say about how the anti-war movement saw itself? Right. You know, these are supposed to be the zany, fun, young, uh, just out, just out there making jokes, getting laid guys that, uh, you know, probably some young people you know saw themselves as what what does this say about the anti-war movement and how like uh young people maybe at the time would have seen themselves yeah there's two questions like how did they see it at the time like and how do we look how do people look back on it because it's discussed uh, in it's always cited this movie alongside of the larger mythos of resistance to the war which you know is basically like the hippie kids went out and protested music and art and other forms like maybe movies like mash changed consciousness and pressure was brought to bear against the war. You know, minds were changed and the war, uh, ended, I guess. Um, (laughs) and like, this is the, uh, you know, this is very idealist view. Uh, it's not really true. Like, I think you guys have, have talked about that, you know, a bit that, that, that doesn't really hold up, but that, is where this exists and I think how it saw itself at the time. But like, so I think 
by identifying MASH as like a culture war movie, I think what we're saying is that it is not that that kind of may, is mutually exclusive with it being a bold piece of like transgressive consciousness changing art, if that's even possible. And but that at the same time, that's what interests us in it to talk about it today. Right. Like, that's why you guys wanted to talk about it, because the culture was changing. You know, Vietnam was changing like was after 68 was causing the split in the culture the election of nixon like was creating this major departure and so that is like the importance of looking back on mash now you know like Mm -hmm. um at least as a political document like yeah so you know we can dispense with like it as a as like a real like anti-war document um and and identify it in this impo- important thing that we're still like living with that comes out of this period, which is the the culture, the never ending culture war. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a, the way to sort of see it. And I think, you know, an interesting thing to kind of get into uh, just a little bit is just the role that, you know, kind of culture, things like movies and stuff play in social movements. And I think when we look back, we always want to see them as maybe leading the movement in some way, yeah. inspiring the movement, as opposed to what Munya, me and you have talked about, right, in Ending the Myth, which is it's the exact opposite. The social movements happen, and mm-hmm. then this cultural sort of, you know, this is sort of the cultural waste of the social movement <laughs> itself, right? This is the byproduct of the social movement itself. And um, I think after talking about, you know, we talked about MASH, it was wacky, it was fun. Uh, I just also like kind of unrelated to like just mash like the plot in general. I think it was just like for me just personally, it was like cool to see um, like Tom Skerritt in this role because mm-hmm. I literally so he he actually starred in my mom's movie East of the Mountains. And uh, that's my film credit for why I'm here. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> is is. And like, uh, you know, and I got to meet him in real life. Right. So like I know his face, but I know his face from, you know, today. And so it was so um, interesting just seeing like how like, you know, that 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 film that he was in with my mom. So me to the mountains like that was like his first like lead role. And so I didn't necessarily realize like how many, um, you know, roles where he was like the supporting actor in so many. Mm -hmm. And like he was like very, very young, too. So like I remember after. My mom saw me rent it on Apple, so she texted me and was like, uh, "Oh wow, like you saw Tom Scare. I was like, "That was Tom the entire time." I actually had to rewind. I was <laughs> oh like, shit! Oh, like, wow. Okay. Yeah. 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 Very young. I mean, probably one of his earliest. No, no mustache. Yeah. yeah. He's no had mustache a mustache since yeah. like 1980. So. Yeah. Absolute legend. Exactly. Though. Never. Yeah. Every movie's better by having Tom in it. Yeah. So, like, you know, before we move on to this, like, you know, that's we've talked about like the political dimension. Like, Mash is also remembered just as a movie as being mm-hmm. pretty revolutionary. And I think that like, if you're going to watch it, like it, it's more interesting on that level uh, than it is like as uh, a political document, like, and uh, some of it may be hard to miss because I mean, hard to see as a modern audience, because it's hard to tell how different it was. Like I don't know, you could almost look at it, see some things that feel very like movies today uh, that feel very natural. that were actually very new in that movie that, Altman really like originated and in other ways you might think it just looks cheap and old um, (laughs) or which also is you know you might be missing things like so this includes like the use of characters actors sound and dialogue like 
part of throwing out the script was like all the scenes are basically in the script, but he got a whole like acting troupe from San Francisco, like an experimental acting theater theater company, like to come down and like invent all these small roles of all the people in the base that just are in the scenes. And then they improvised a lot of the stuff or not necessarily on camera, but they worked out these scenes like as a theater group doing improvisational techniques where they like made these characters and they kind of put these together. That's weird for the time to have so many characters with speaking parts. There's probably like 50 people like talking this movie. Um, the way that is captured, the sound, no more mics per scene were used than maybe ever before in a movie to capture this, like in almost all the scenes where you have everybody out of frame, hidden below them, above them. Everybody has microphones on a separate track so that you can get all this, these people talking. Some of that, some of that is like these wides that pan over large groups of people like in the mess hall or in the the surgical tent where like a conversation is happening here and then a conversation is happening here then it's happening over here and then you're still hearing a little bit of it over here other times it's people talking over each other there's a number of scenes where they're all just talking over and yet you can kind of hear it all and that's because they very carefully mic'd it all and they rehearsed this so that it all kind of works like music you know like in this very real sounding way where you didn't do that in movies. You still don't. Certainly not in like TV, which is all we watch today. Uh, nobody's really seen mm -hmm. a movie. Um, but nobody mm -hmm. talks over each other. But this, like, it does that. And it's part of the fun and the realism and how funny it is. Um, there's the, the way I say it, it could look cheap to people is because like part of what, again, makes it kind of feel alive and but loose and real, but like lived in is the sort of uh, documentary style of it, which is not like what we'd think of as documentary style today. It's not a mockumentary, nor is it like a bunch of handheld shaky camera. It's rather there's a camera on a tripod, on a dolly, on something that is just being panned around to follow the action uh, rather than like these composed, like uh, perfect shots. And sometimes that means like the, the move isn't completely fluid. Like it lands on something and like, you know, takes a minute to stop or like then they actually use the zoom lens to go on which you would see maybe in campier movies and like seeing like 70s hong kong cinema like where you'd like a snap zoom on some like guy doing a cool <laughs> move but like used like kind of slowly just like going in and out instead of an actual dolly that moves the camera like makes it look like news footage a little at, of the time which you wouldn't necessarily get today it might just look kind of cheap um but it's part of making it just feel kind of real and loose and less like a movie, um, which, uh, which all rolls into the improvisational style of acting and having all the voices and all the characters talking instead of like more like a stage play. Yeah. You might, that might be lost. You just want to sum that up. That's the other reason to watch mash. It's also yeah. just, it's very funny. Like all this adds up to it being really fucking funny. Yeah. Yeah. Altman is uh breaking news here, a good director and yeah. You know, one of his things is using this extremely naturalistic sort of style to kind of take an extreme situation, which would, of course, be a medical, a surgical unit in a war and make it look like and feel like slice of life. Like you're just there. You're one of the characters wandering around watching this all happen. Right. Yeah. And it's uh, you know, creatively. It's a it's a it's a very good and like groundbreaking film worth watching. This was so groundbreaking, throwing like using the script as little as they did like changing the dialogue having all these other characters say things having the main actors like make up their dialogue a little more like working this out where they were barely touching the script and then all this ways the stars sutherland and gould 
uh, Elliot Gould, the sexiest man to ever live, um, actually <laughs> went to the Xanax, went to the studio heads, or maybe it was the head of production, and said, like, you got you got to fire this guy. Like, he's making... A, this is a disaster. He's not following the script. We're just shooting <laughs> this random scenes. We're just doing this, this crazy bullshit. Like, this is going to turn out... We're going to be embarrassed when this is done. And the studio heads basically looked at him one way or the other. We're like, you know, you guys are actors, right? Get the fuck out of my office. Go to your job. You're under contract. Go back to the set. Yeah, that was the ad. It's like, look, we hired the director, whatever. We've seen the dailies. We're laughing a little, whatever. They didn't yeah. really give a shit. Later, when it was a hit, Donald Sutherland never said anything to Robert Altman. Gould went back and apologized. He's like, look, I did this. I'm sorry. I didn't trust you. I was an asshole. And he was in his next movie, uh, Nashville, which is great. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's how you get work. There you <laughs> go. Yeah, the point is, yeah. they the the actors thought it was so insane what mm-hmm. they were doing that they felt they that had they to were go their bets. up yeah. to the up to the studio <laughs> no. bosses, and that's how different a movie it was for the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's wild. The bayous of Louisiana, the home of a little understood group of Americans. They're a peaceful people as long as they're left alone. The National Guard on weekend maneuvers. In 48 hours, they'll be home with their families. There's only one problem. We live back in here. This is our home. They've crossed the boundary into a territory where they don't belong. We ran into some people that are real weird, and I think maybe they're trying to kill us. They violated laws that never knew existed. Somebody figure out where the hell we're going and do it quick. Gotta go east to go north. Hell, that damn man. And the farther they go, the closer they get to nowhere. I'm gonna do it. But I'm gonna fight my way out of here. Southern Comfort. It's the land of hospitality. Unless you don't belong there. All right. Well, that was the trailer for the next movie we're going to talk about, which is 1981's Southern Comfort. Now, this movie, uh, vibe-wise, a little less, a little different than MASH. A <laughs> um, <laughs> little bit. Little. I mean, I think there's still hijinks, but a little different than MASH. Uh, so Southern Comfort, you know, is only slightly less famous than MASH. Uh, it's the story of... <laughs> this is so... My dad showed me this movie um, when I was like, you know, 10 or something. I've been telling people about it ever since. Like, <laughs> and people really should watch this. I mean, we're all just going to give a strong recommendation right, right yeah. now. Just watch this movie. Uh, but so Southern Comfort, it's the story of a Louisiana National Guard unit that gets lost in the Louisiana Bayou in 1973. While in the Bayou, they encounter some interesting country folk uh after stealing their boats cutting up their fishing lines and firing on these hillbillies with blanks out of their assault rifles the guardsmen begin to get pursued through the bayou by wild cajuns bent on revenge all right so that's the basic summary of the film Munya. if you're not hearing that and like immediately finding how to watch this like (laughs) there's something wrong with you like that is whatever else even if none of the things we were going to say about it like there was no connection to vietnam there's nothing else going on here like that is a movie that's a fucking movie munia what was your review of uh southern cover how how did this movie hit you this this movie this is this is the four wagon wheel movie for me this one (laughs) this one was this wagon rides 
this wagon rides and rides well, man. Like the, <laughs> I, I thoroughly enjoyed Southern Comfort. Like you know the the plot, the plot of it again. Like just like Mash. Like I don't really know the context of Southern Comfort. I've really only heard it because you guys have like kind of talked about it loosely off mic, right? Like this is like not something that I'm like fully aware of in like the cultural zeitgeist necessarily. Um, <laughs> But I could be argued that it's not part of the cultural zeitgeist. Okay, well there you go. See, I didn't even know that it wasn't right. Like, (laughs) I didn't know how how much it meant to America or not. But like, uh, wow, what what a movie this was! Like this one, um, you know, very just clearly kind of like hits it hits the nail on the head. But it's just like so enjoyable um, and just like an entertaining movie. It felt like just such a deep almost dry satire too on on war that like you really can get you don't need to like you know have an iq of like like 500 to understand but still <laughs> it's like dry right if you're like watching yeah. it you uh, might yeah. just think that you know for the first 30 minutes this is like a serious war movie right because you know serious war movies have it is you know because it's an adventure movie of these guys that who are constantly basically slowly dwindling in like troop numbers right like this like squadron who's just like you know almost like Willy Wonka's like or Charlie in the Chocolate Factory right you know like it's just like (laughs) one by one they're getting like plucked off um but no so like you know you you could like be under the impression that this is like a serious war movie of like these like brave people who are like you know all dying and they have to live through this adversity and they're lost in the woods and stuff but like it's just so very clearly such a brutal like satire on the military on the vietnam war especially right the fact that this sometimes i forget that this was like just in louisiana and mm-hmm. i just like because their uniforms say u.s army on it that's the funny thing about it is mm-hmm. like if you actually see it, it doesn't say u.s national guard it says the u.s army so um you could actually believe that this was in Vietnam and just like in Vietnam, right? Like these guys, like whether they're like turning on each other, like turning on their like, you know, uh, captain, right? Um, a bunch of their, they very well should outnumber these like hillbilly people basically, but uh, keep on like doing own goals and like get, <laughs> getting completely owned by like much more skilled marksmen on the other side. Right. Just like, and, and it ends with just like, you know, basically like, two people who, I mean, okay, spoiler alert, sorry, but like, you know, um, you know, it, it ends with like a lot less people than uh, they started with. Right. And mm-hmm. like, uh, uh I just thought just the journey through that, the parallels to the Vietnam War, um, just the buffoonery and just incompetence of like these guys, um, as well as just like the psychological like aspect, I think, of like being a National Guards person, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> lost, right? And how quickly they just uh, completely either turned each- on each other, or left each other for dead, um, you know, how they treated um their like one captive person that they had and like just like, made them like their own like torture person for like really no reason could barely speak english and like still like would waterboard him and shit and mm-hmm. <laughs> until like one person kind of like you know steps in on the matter uh yeah you know i think that that was all uh very intentional right and always had like very like clear parallels i think to um vietnam and it was just a really brutal um you know, satire, I think, uh, on or at least brutal criticism, I would say, not satire. It yeah. was a brutal criticism. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think the one thing to be said about this movie is it's very definitely about Vietnam. Going, I mean, going oh, back yeah. and looked at the reviews, that's the first sentence oh, in every totally. review. Is no, like, I mean, I, I think so. That, this movie's about Vietnam, and uh, it's like so uh, so clear it's about Vietnam. Yeah. So, so Greg, uh, what can you tell us, uh, you know, sort of about this movie and about its director Walter Hill, who's a bit of a legend himself in the kind of like B movie ish uh, range of films. Okay, so first of all, Southern Comfort was directed by the god Walter Hill. Uh, (laughs) If you've seen any of his movies, the most likely is probably The Warriors, which had a resurgence recently. That's it might be his previous film to this or. Yeah, I mean, this was 81 um, and Warriors was 79. That had a resurgence actually uh, very similar in that it's about a group of people uh, trying to make it home through enemy territory um, in a very different setting. But the same sort of relentless, like perfect pacing of the uh, the group chase movie. Um, if you like the Warriors, check out Streets of Fire, Forty Eight Hours, another movie about like people like like a continuous uh, time movie of just like people like getting through danger together, you know. Um, and uh, a movie very important to me and my life and my worldview: Brewster's Millions, the remake of <laughs> Brewster's Millions with. Uh, with Richard uh, Pryor and John Candy. Uh, when I guess when Hollywood was like, oh, I guess you know how to make a movie. Uh, we'll give you a regular comedy to make. Um, and uh, yeah, it's awesome. Love that movie. Very different. But um, this is much more. So this is after Vietnam. Okay, this is 1981. Like, mm-hmm. and this is after movies have started to actually appear about Vietnam, starting in like the late 70s, where you get Apocalypse Now. You know what you also talked about with Jerry Lemke being actually mm-hmm. a, a good movie, uh, not in like any kind of historical sense, just in a kind of like a horrifying in, vibe. Yeah, vibes. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, just in in uh, the you know the, the the awesome insanity of American military empire just like descending on a place. Uh, you know the uh, weepy reactionary. Uh, snooze fest uh, highly regarded the deer hunter with De Niro and uh, Walken Christopher Walken the deer hunter is a good example of like how you could watch some of these and some you know some other movies about Vietnam that start coming out in the 80s like uh, Rambo or First Blood and then Rambo 2 especially where he actually goes back to Vietnam to find the the POWs (laughs) who are still there you know um uh, the fucking what's the uh, the Chuck Norris one? Um, uh, missing in action. Missing in action. And then later, you know, uh, Oliver Stone's Platoon, which you know maybe gets a little better than his his much later early nineties, maybe eighty, maybe it's eighty nine. Um, Born on the Fourth of July. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are movies that like actually, you know, are explicitly about Vietnam, and they are about the same part of vietnam uh and that is the counterinsurgency war i think is how to like view southern comfort it's a movie about mm-hmm. the counterinsurgency war in vietnam now on the one hand like i think it, if you situate all those movies that are about and this is the the stereotypical like image of vietnam like american marines traipsing through a dense jungle on patrol and being ambushed by the Viet Cong, you know 
first of all, like th- this classic image of the American experience in Vietnam is is not really a, a, a very good, like holistic historical picture because really most of that war objectively was a, a war of uh, genocide from the air where, you know, we just bombed North Vietnam and uh, and lots of South Vietnam and other and some other countries, uh, you know, into obliteration. Um, and, you know, that there's there aren't many movies about that. I mentioned uh, Flight of the Intruder to you as being an actual Vietnam Air War movie that is a reactionary nightmare. But um, uh, that, that's that's a weird one. But mostly they're not about that. They're about something. And if you watch these, I remember watching these as a kid uh, and really being confused about like even what what are these fucking people doing? Like, isn't a war like a a front line? Aren't you trying to like take territory? Like, <laughs> aren't you trying to like push back the enemy and like have like supply lines behind you and like fight with like tanks and like and none of these movies that have this imagery uh, of the Marines traipsing through the jungle really get into like what they're really doing, except to maybe say out of the mouths of the soldiers themselves, commonly like, I don't understand what we're doing here. Like uh, commonly, you know, part of the narrative is like uh, the, uh, the, the people here don't even want us here. Like we're supposed to be here helping them defend them from communism but they don't want us here. And he get, conf- but that's confusing in itself. You're like, what, what is going on? Where are these fucking people? And what yeah, are they yeah. doing? How does <laughs> yeah. a war work like this? And what none of the, what like this image is like inescapable. It's, it's like what everybody remembers and what's been put on film, but you know, the, what no one wants to explain to you in the popular culture of Vietnam is counterinsurgency, which mm-hmm. is what, all this imagery comes from which is to say all of this is all of you know this part of the war this relatively limited part of the war compared to the the death toll of the the air war the bomb the strategic bombing uh of civilians is where uh yeah the american military was going traipsing all around south vietnam Mm. Uh, doing counterinsurgency, pacifying the countryside, rooting out uh, insurgents, rooting out communists, read just massacring people in a different way. I mean, this is how this is, you know, uh, everyone, you know, got a, some knowledge about the Malay massacre. Um, you know, that's what they're doing. This wasn't like an advancing army, like taking territory. You know, this is like they're walking around from village to village, uh, terrorizing them in all manner of ways, you know, and like yeah, doing the and, uh, up close and personal violence that really makes a war hum. Yeah. But in a way, it's like it's not even a war as you would picture it, mm-hmm. which is why this is so confusing. So confusing. Mm-hmm. It's not like uh, the the uh, the allied western front in world war ii you know it's not um it's it's ostensibly uh allied controlled territory like your side and this uh, people who are you're supposed to be there helping and and then but there's enemies on all sides and 
this explain you know this is the missing piece of what makes this make sense that i had to learn like later after really loving like old anything movies that had to do with vietnam you know it's like oh this is south vietnam and they're just wandering around harassing people that's the war like yeah they're seldom ever actually coming up in contact with like a real like army uh north vietnamese army unit which is why they don't show that Mm -hmm. yeah there's just like people jumping out of the jungle at them and you're like this doesn't make sense uh and that is what uh, Southern Comfort is about, but yeah, in a better way than I think a lot of the narrative uh, usually is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, interestingly, uh, you brought up the deer hunter, right? And so uh, show favorite H. Bruce Franklin of <laughs> the last few episodes. I think it just keeps coming up over and over again, but because he talks about this stuff, you know, in his criticism of the deer hunter, he was saying, you know, the deer hunter was the first like major effort, right, from a major cultural producer mm-hmm. to turn the reality of the war into its opposite, right? The reason yeah. why we didn't depict the air war is that it's very clearly bad. Like it makes us look yeah. bad, right? Like there's no sympathy for like the guy mm-hmm. dropping bombs on a helpless population 50,000 feet below them, right? And I mean, so he said, John McCain tried to wring plenty of sympathy out of that. He got to the Senate not based on that, but hey, you know. Yeah, that yeah, a lot looks, of course money will get you there. But that's about it. Yeah. yeah, and so you know, he looked at the deer hunter. He said the deer hunter, what it did was it turned everything into its opposite. So no longer were the Americans hunting down people in counterinsurgency raids and torturing them and things like that. It was in fact the overpowered Vietnamese soldiers who were capturing hapless Americans. Who knows where they caught them? Maybe, you know, maybe in <laughs> Idaho, maybe in Vietnam, who knows? Right? <laughs> but capturing, you know, hapless American soldiers, keeping them in the tiger cages and all that, all of which people had seen in Life magazine in depictions of Arvin uh, and American, that's the South Vietnamese army, uh, Arvin and American prison camps, right? So yeah. the imagery they'd seen that was American prison camps where we were keeping, you know, the Vietnamese who we suspected to be communists or whatever was completely reversed and reverse engineered and the deer hunter to be, no, that's what they did to us. Right. And that that's so to try and change the sympathy narrative. And I think what makes uh, Southern Comfort, such a great movie and such a great antidote to that is it does cover this counterinsurgency campaign you're talking about, Greg, but it covers it in a way that shows you you still shouldn't be sympathetic to the Americans. Yep. Like they shouldn't be there. They shouldn't yeah. be doing the things they're doing. And the people who are tracking them down are right. Yeah, they're right to do it you know Um, you you can't be a viewer like even let's say you know because of course maybe we would view the movie from that i just don't see how like anyone like the film is intentionally doing this where the average viewer who is not like doing a political analysis on this movie right is like grown to not like the you know um american national guard people right like it's just like very clearly they're not supposed to be mm-hmm. there um and it's like not a it's not a matter of political perspective really i think in this case it's uh it's just a matter of fact right like yeah. it's so like depict- they're just terrorizing these like poor in, people and they're you depicted know? very clearly as shit heels and yeah. uh and just a bunch of dumbasses and I think the one character who actually goes crazy, they very interestingly depict him. And I kind of wonder what Walter Hill's background is, because certainly for somebody who grew up in the South, this is a very rings true thing. The one guy who goes crazy and tries to kill everybody 
is a high school football yeah, coach yeah. and like and, I, yeah, and they, and they yeah. make a very clear point early on of, they don't go through everybody's profession but they make a very clear point to point out that guy's a high school football coach they call him and, coach yeah and for a certain audience myself right for a certain audience you immediately know that character <laughs> you're like yeah. oh, that's the worst one of the bunch potentially right <laughs> you know and we're gonna find there's lots of other shitheads in the group but yeah that one in particular your yeah. eyes on <laughs> so like he he makes this story he wants to tell a because everyone's doing this everyone's the only thing you're allowed to remember is this is the counterinsurgency war but in this way that doesn't really explain it because this twisted version is the only thing you can say that's the way you can tell a sympathetic story that's actually set there but of course it's wrong as well and it's used also to just to make the that story the deer hunter is the perfect thing not only does it reverse all that stuff but the point of it is like oh look how look what uh Look what the war did to our boys, you know, like yeah. weep, weep for the weep for the boys who died, but also the ones who came home because they feel real bad about napalming that village <laughs> with a flamethrower, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, <laughs> and that's like the whole point. Right. And like, so by setting this by by setting this where he does, he makes it so much more digestible and like interpretable by an American audience. So the Louisiana National Guard, instead of the u.s marines the american army the whole like might this thing well it's that it's the u.s army but it's this this small section of the army that you are meant to laugh at from moment one as like if you don't mm -hmm. if you you like this movie is about um the louisiana national guard getting lost in the bayou oh perfect a movie about a bunch of dumbasses you know like yeah. that's immediately without seeing the trailer what a lot of people would be thinking, but then you open it up. The the opening scenes are so incredible. You get this line of soldiers pointing their M16s mm -hmm. directly at the camera, <laughs> and then they're in focus, or it's or uh like people are crossing, like doing uh foreground crosses in front of you, like carrying carrying things. Yeah, and between then the racks, camera and the and the guys of the guns. Yeah, yeah. It racks <laughs> it racks back to the M16s pointed at the camera. And as people continue to walk in front of them, they just start unloading, like blasting. <laughs> and you're like, this does two things. It exposits one key plot point that they're all carrying blanks in mm -hmm. their guns for this exercise. So they're the Louisiana this is their one weekend a month. It's the it's the National Guard like uh, jerk offs like coming out to do their one weekend a month in the national guard where they're going to traipse around do some military exercises and okay we now know they're all carrying blanks and viscerally immediately also you understand blanks or not these people are insanely irresponsible like yeah. they're firing <laughs> they're like firing at live each other fire just yeah. at each other yeah. because they're like oh they're blanks you know yeah. uh insanely dangerous so immediately like these are jerk offs then in the dialogue it's all like hey we're a bunch of dumb fuck-ups we're we're fucking yeah. morons we're the we're the scum <laughs> of the fucking earth like it's like we suck, you know, like they talk about how uh, the glory days of their unit was cracking he the heads of civil rights uh, demonstrators, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. College kids. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like, oh, we can go back to cracking heads on college campuses and civil rights, you know, civil rights demonstrations. Yeah. So it then does the same, a similar thing for us by like transposing the South Vietnamese people 
the, you know, people trying to live their lives, uh, mm-hmm. like who the uh, American, you know, uh, platoon comes across to do counterinsurgency, um, you know, who, who have the misfortune of like, uh, meeting Lieutenant Callie on a bad day. And like it transposes those people into a different kind of rural peasant, <laughs> a kind that is American in America, but still extremely foreign in that they're weird French Canadians in the middle of nowhere who've lived there for right. generations, the Cajuns. <laughs> yeah, um, like Cajun hillbillies who speak. Uh, the funniest part are... is they all speak a version very uh, clearly of French to each other. And one of the yeah. guys is like, wait, I took French in high school. And we, we, we and you were watching this guy guys laughing. I was like, I don't think that's the same French they're speaking, but like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. not going to get you anywhere. But, well, they're, but yeah. yeah, they're the Cajuns, you know, are people like, you know, lived uh, the refugees from, from the uh, seven years war in, in French Canada, uh, mm-hmm. who then came to the last, like, you know, uh, French place in North America, in Louisiana, and then lived in the bayou. And like, you know, yeah, they're the uh, very old kind of uh, uh, very foreign white trash. Um, Mm -hmm. And and, uh, you know, that but that allows us to, like, get the foreignness of them. And yet, again, makes it easiest easier for us to understand this because, like, at the same time, they're white people and they are Americans. This is America. So, like, yeah, yeah. the the way that these other movies like basically portray like the South Vietnamese people as like, you know, some kind of like subhuman monster, you know, mm-hmm. you know, the, the e- either they're just the, the peasant who's like ungrateful that America's there to help them or even worse, like who turns on them, you know, or yeah, just the, the man in the black pajamas, the, the, the undifferentiated um yeah, asiatic horde. mass of yeah. yeah horde of uh stone age uh killers you know um so like then we see our our american shit heels sent out on a meaningless stupid mission that uh they shouldn't be doing they're one weekend a month you know mm-hmm. uh a thing they shouldn't do yeah, and the movie is really great. It gives you uh, absolutely zero confidence uh, right from the get-go that these guys can accomplish anything, like read a compass, combine that with a map. Like, you're pretty mm-hmm. sure from the beginning they're not going to be able to do that. Uh, the competency level's at zero. Now, a little context is probably required here. Uh, the National Guard, particularly in the 1960s and 70s, was held in absolute disdain by everybody in America. It was where you went to hide from the draft, hence why George W. Bush was in it. Uh, It was universally understood to be a place uh, where just alcoholics and drug addicts fucking like coalesced together uh, and lived off their parents' money. Um, Hence the the, why that propaganda against George W. Bush that the Democrats rolled out about him being a cokehead in the National Guard rung so true for so many people. Yeah. Uh, And I'll tell you a, a story. Uh, that my dad had, who was in the army in the seventies, uh, and then was in the National Guard briefly in the late seventies, was he was like, you know, they would tell everybody in New Mexico never drive behind the National Guard bus, right? These like big buses when they take them out on their little weekend sojourns or whatever. He'd be like, they would tell everybody in the state new, like, do not drive behind that bus because you don't want to get hit by all the beer bottles flying out the side of it right and uh-huh. my dad has wars his war stories are about 
opening up the bus door while the bus is doing like 60 down the highway in uh, New Mexico and pissing out the you know door like on the steps of the school bus <laughs> pissing out the door of it right you know that was the National Guard that was like how it was understood at the time so people coming in watching this movie this is what they're bringing to it and then you get that opening and the scene is yeah. set <laughs> and, and what people who've listened to to ending ending the myth know is that Basically, all of that stuff was true of American military personnel serving in Vietnam as well. Yeah. Just less universally known and understood and talked about. And, you know, maybe to a, in some ways, like less exaggerated degree, but everyone was on smack and like, yeah, was drunk out of their minds and was insubordinate and mutinous. And um, so it's this perfect way to get an audience in, in this way they know and understand and are willing to from the start go like these guys are a bunch of fucking clowns who should not be where they are. Yeah. And they should not are be doing not capable what they're doing. of doing what they're doing and what they're doing. They shouldn't be doing. And whereas harder to do that about the, I know actual American soldiers in Vietnam. And so like on the flip side, the movie doesn't go out of its way to like humanize the occasions. Um, but uh, until maybe the end, a little bit. Um, mm. Yeah, it should be said the movie's told entirely through the perspective of the National Guardsmen. Yes. Right? Yeah. So, so yeah. we actually only see shadows essentially of the Cajuns until the very end when they visit a <laughs> occasion enclave. Uh, yeah. You know, it's our first little peek at the way these guys live, which honestly looked pretty cool. It looked awesome. I thought this, honestly, <laughs> I thought the end, you know, was going to be a. Um, that it was going to be a galaxy brain POW thing of like them being like, damn, this is awesome. I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So it is from their perspective, but like, and this is where you could imagine that it's going to tell the same kind of story as a lot of the Vietnam narrative mm-hmm. where it's like, Oh, look what happened to our soldiers. You know, look what, uh, look the hell they went through. And it's like, you could see it that way, but I think it's setting up that like you shouldn't be sympathetic for these people because not only at the beginning, you're like ready to not sympathize with these people. They're dumbasses. The stakes are lower than than the counterinsurgency war in South Vietnam, but they're dumbasses. And then from the very beginning, the, they begin to commit cr- crimes and violence against the local population. So the first they steal their canoes yep and then in one of the 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 greatest like one of my favorite moments in all cinema one of the biggest jerk offs of the whole platoon as they see two cajuns both carrying rifles like from the distance back on the shore where they've stolen the canoes from and some of the guys are going oh hey we'll come back we'll bring back your canoes so sorry they're holding rifles and the biggest dumbass of the whole group, who's the heavy machine gunner, he's carrying the big fucking M60 like like uh, Rambo would later use in Rambo 2. He, laughing maniacally, opens <laughs> fire on them, just like strafing them. And these guys who are just standing on, they're not doing shit. They're just standing with their rifles, like, in, like you can't even make out their faces, just standing looking. Like, mm-hmm. they're not making any threats. They're not trying to commute. They're just like, these guys stole our, what do we, you know, they're just standing there looking at these guys no, row yeah. away in their canoes and they dive, they dive for cover. 
And then everyone gets pissed and they're yelling at this guy. What the fuck are you doing? And the gormless fucking moron. It's like, they're just blanks. Yeah. Like yeah. never, yeah. like yeah. never the, the incredible, that the idea of this, like you to, you have to be a genius to come up with an idea to get into the mind of someone so stupid. You know, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he like, does. I mean, the, it's really genius because he spends the rest of the movie, basically that character going, I don't know why they're so mad at us. They were just blanks. You know, yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it's <laughs> brilliant. He, Not he understanding. Doesn't, that. He doesn't get the, <laughs> he never they, the guys well, yeah. holding rifles on whose turf you now are, whose whose canoes you stole. Who's stealing a canoe. They yeah, don't right. Know <laughs> that those are blanks, my dude. And yeah. and even if they were, who gives right, a fuck? Right, still, <laughs> so but like, right, like you shouldn't be shooting. It's so it's so dangerous, my god. Um, and so then there, as they're like yelling, you you idiot, you don't, you fucking moron. Then like, then the movie really starts because the Cajuns are like, well, now we're being fired upon. Like we have to defend ourselves. Yeah, obviously, this is war. the obvious thing that you would do. And so they they take aim, they blow. They blow a guy's head off, like, and then yeah, it's like, they, oh shit! And then one from shot, then on, it was like they're like serious marksmen, which like yeah. showed that they were much more competent than these guys. <laughs> yes. Like from yes. the get, you are never led to believe that the National Guard is more competent than these Cajuns. You're, you're from the. I mean, in in uh, the director is very clear about this. Like the Cajuns who live there, they know the territory, they know where they're at, right? They know how to move around in it. They're proficient in using weapons and things like that. It's the National Guard who's lost, who doesn't know what they're doing. And they hilariously, over and over again, try and revert back to their military training and execute these just ludicrous military maneuvers that they read in a training manual that you're led to believe is essentially a comic book that they were given uh you know uh to try and counter the moves of their uh new cajun enemy uh to zero effect right they're just completely incapable of uh putting up a fight uh it's yeah yeah it's it's uh it, it, an interesting depiction now going back i went back and read uh the ebert's review of this movie uh you know as you know on the michael Dust podcast they call them the exact median opinion of any movie at any one time so i went back and looked at this review <laughs> yeah which he hilariously gave three stars but in ebert's review of southern comfort you know he talks about you know the ineptitude of the national guardsmen right as being this metaphor for vietnam the fact that everything they try from their army handbook is a total failure and interestingly he mentions the idea of the helicopters roaring helplessly overhead completely unable to do anything right the, the complete impotence essentially of this giant war machine dropped in the middle of this bayou defeated by essentially country hillbillies right and uh, and I think that's exactly what Walter Hill's going for. And it makes it a more effective, as we've been saying, movie about counterinsurgency and about the Vietnam War than a lot of what we had gotten previous to it. Now, one movie I wanted to kind of discuss in conjuncture with this or, you know, in connection to this, because it came out the very next year was Rambo First Blood Part One, which Greg, just because of your age, I know for a fact you've seen Rambo First yeah, Blood Part yeah. One. Mooney, have you seen this movie, Rambo One? Uh, no, it's, it's I reason haven't. Oregon. So for our oh. younger listeners who maybe are not quite aware, the premise of this is that 
our titular John Rambo is, you know, he's, he's out of Vietnam. He's back in America. He's hitchhiking across the country, just trying to find himself. He finds himself in a small town in Oregon. Uh, he gets harassed by a police officer who basically tells him like, hey, look, bum, get out of our town. And then he proceeds to uh, get in an altercation with the police that leads to Rambo doing a one man counterinsurgency in the Oregon wilderness, uh, finishing up with him taking over the police station and giving a very teary eyed speech about how he got spit on when he came back from Vietnam. And, you know, he's this perfect <laughs> killing machine, but the Americans, you know, the Amer somebody in America doesn't want him to win. You know, it wasn't my war. You asked me, I didn't ask you. And I did what I had to do to win, but somebody wouldn't let us win. And I come back to the world, and I see all those maggots at the airport protesting me, spitting, calling me baby killer and all kinds of vile crap. Who are they to protest me, huh? Who are they? Unless they've been me and been there and know what the hell they're yelling about. It was a bad time for everyone, Rambo. <laughs> um, uh, so I think these are similar movies aesthetically, right? You know, uh, the military's in the woods fighting uh, bumpkins, right? Mm -hmm. And I think what makes Walter Hill kind of a genius and Sylvester Stallone kind of a right-wing idiot is Walter Hill is like, yeah, the Americans lose in that battle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're not like some sort of super soldier uh, who just, get, you know, is impervious to any sort of uh, strategy or anything like that and, and impervious to any sort of pain. And... You know, in that he gives, I think, a better depiction, uh, probably for the 1970s, right? In the radical movies of the 1970s of the Vietnam War, whereas Rambo, first of all, part one is the Reagan era depiction yeah. of, you know, what they want to look at as the war, right? Of, you know, this is actually about wounded masculinity. Uh, you know, Rambo, he's not allowed to be the man that this country needs, right? By a bunch <laughs> of pencil neck fucking, you know, bureaucrats, <laughs> right? And if only the government would get out of his way, right? Which, of course, as Greg alluded to, he immediately goes back in First Blood Part Two to rescue the POWs that the, uh, you know, like pussy American government <laughs> left behind, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, uh, because China told him to, right? Or whatever, you know, whatever the excuse in the movie they give, right? And I think that juxtaposition is like interesting uh, because I think it also explains why we've all watched Rambo First Blood, right? People of our age, Greg, have all watched Rambo First Blood, but mm -hmm. didn't necessarily, unless somebody very wise set us down, watch Southern Comfort. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Look, Southern Comfort, it answers the question asked by a lot of these movies, including like, I think Rambo, John Rambo in dialogue in First Blood was like, why did they hate us? Like mm -hmm. why we came there to help them? Why did they? Why were they shooting at us? Like, we just came there to fight communism. What? What? Why did they? Why did they turn on us? They was they were ungrateful. You know why? Well, why? Southern Comfort answers that question. You, it, you did this. You instigated this violence. Mm -hmm. You came to this place. You committed crimes against the local population who then behaved completely normally and naturally in context by by trying to defend themselves you this is all your fault you know they go into that that bayou they lose their minds because they're like i mean they revert to they instigate the violence then they they keep doing more they 
instead of just trying to run away, they keep escalating the violence. Yeah. They kidnap a guy. They blow up his house. They torture him. They, and all because like, they they invent this thing in their minds where they're being wronged, and then yes, that they have to like do some some army guy GI Joe shit to like save themselves instead of just fucking running and finding the way out. Mm-hmm. There's a whole like thread that keeps coming up. The guy saying the highway is this way. I can see by the sun and the moss <laughs> on the trees. We need to go west. He's there's a guy saying we just need to leave. We just need to leave. And the idiots are saying we just need to do army. You know, we just need to keep prosecuting this war. And the the problem is that they're there at all. The problem is that the army sent them there in the first place and that there are the people they were when they got there. They they had all these tools and these trainings, but the Bayou did not make them into insane, violent morons. They mm-hmm. were already Americans. That, that yeah. is, yeah, that's, that's what Southern comfort is. Like it doesn't necessarily have a parallel to like, why you shouldn't be in there first why counterinsurgency like what that is but it's showing the details of to refute this narrative of like oh you know well we were just trying to help these village people root out the communists you know and it's like (laughs) and then they turned on us it's like no dumbass like you you started murdering them you know uh and that, yeah. like that's what the blank him firing the blanks it's like this thing that the empire and its tools on the ground around the world in the war against communism have the, all this ideology that they believe like well, like we're not this isn't evil what we're doing these aren't war crimes we're not hurting you we're rooting out the enemy like we're mm-hmm. doing this normal what what are you complaining about you know when i arrest like all like uh, all like the uh military age males in your village and you never see them again when when people come in the night and like uh murder all the leaders of uh your town who have been suspected of uh you know talking to communists at some point like that's to help you stop complaining what why 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 are you getting pissed off about this why are you now like uh planting you know grenades uh in our helicopters you know Mm -hmm. like it answers that question it's uh, and it and it also says, like, even, you know, Amer- Americans were always going to do this if you sent them to do this mission. So now, if you see it that way, you can then, I think, if you w- if you choose to, an audience could choose to then extrapolate that, like, well, if this is what the counterinsurgency war was, and if this was always how it was going to turn out with American personnel, like, like going ape shit, uh, and like absolute acting like absolute lunatics and doing unprovoked violence. You could take the next step and say, Oh, that must've been the point. Like mm-hmm. that must've been part of what they were there to do, you know? Yeah. Which is closer yeah. to the truth. Yeah. 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 And the movie doesn't go, you know, quite that far, obviously. And I mean, you no. know, without knowing Walter Hill, uh, his politics, uh, this movie was not successful enough to get a uh, Blu-ray interview with the man. So, yeah. you know, yeah, I'd be kind of curious, though. Uh, it'd be interesting to be able to talk to somebody like that and hear what they had to say. But I do think, again, I mean, com- compared to a movie that I'm sure this movie was compared to a lot in every review, but also I'm sure it was what Walter Hill said to get the money for compared to deliverance, which came out in 72 or 73, uh, you know, deliverance 
which is also about Vietnam. And for, again, those that don't know, it's about four guys who go on a canoeing trip in, um, in like Kentucky or something like that in Appalachia. They get caught by hillbillies and, you know, chaos ensues, right? And in Deliverance, it's very clearly, again, this is Reagan-era, Nixon-era stuff, right? Crisis of masculinity stuff. Uh, the trailer itself, which we I, I said to you, Munoz, to get here, because yeah. all you really need to do is watch <laughs> the trailer to get the vibe, right? But it's like, these are just suburban guys. Could be yeah. just like you, who've sort of lost yeah. themselves in their, you know, uh, effeminized suburban, like, office jobs. Who, you know, <laughs> uh, will, will they step up? Will their masculinity be able to step up to the call? These are the men. Nothing very unusual about them. Suburban guys like you or your neighbor. Nothing very unusual about them until they decided to spend one weekend canoeing down the Kahulawasi River. Ed Gentry, he runs an art service. Wife Martha has a boy, Dee. Lewis Medlock has real estate interests. Talks about resettling in New Zealand or Uruguay. Drew Ballinger, he's sales supervisor for a soft drink company. Bobby Tripp, bachelor, insurance and mutual funds. Will you go in? All right, I'm looking. These are the men who decided not to play golf that weekend. Instead, they sought the river. And again, I just, watching Southern Comfort, I just really like that Walter Hill takes the opposite track that they took in Deliverance, where he's like, Mm -hmm. he leaves all that fucking weird, uh, always made up, always fictional masculinity stuff. He just leaves it on the ground, and he's just like, no, this is a bunch of men who get together, and they are human, in that they're stupid. They, uh, because they're men, they compound their stupidity by how many of them are there, right? You know, they egg each other on into doing increasingly dumb things. And because, and they're not supermen, right? So if somebody shoots at them and they get hit, they don't, uh, you know, pour gunpowder in it and light it on fire and do a cool <laughs> yell, right? And continue fighting. They just die because that's what happens when you get shot, yeah. right? <laughs> so, I mean, given these interesting, you know, sort of tidbits in a movie like Southern Comfort, which is, you know, by most guys, like a B movie, you know, but uh, made by a somewhat seasoned director at the time and things like that. Uh, given the sort of interesting tidbits, what's most stark when you watch a movie like this is how much this doesn't exist today, Right. <laughs> And uh, yeah, Munya, uh, since this is your fault as the youngest one here, mm-hmm. uh, so therefore yep. you're to blame for everything that's happening <laughs> right now. <laughs> I guess, you know, you would have been in high school post 9-11, right? You know, so you're, you're sort of age of the war movie that would have come out. You would have seen it in a movie theater, right? As all these post 9-11 films, I guess. How did these feel different than maybe movies you would have seen in the theater or whatever uh, as like a teenager, right? The prime time to watch the shit. Yeah, exactly. Like every single war movie that I saw, which was when I heard the word like war movie, I never ever thought that it would be anything but like an extremely intense, positive depiction of the U.S. military, right? Like mm-hmm. that. That to me, that's not a question. That's just something of a fact, right? And like I think that you know as you alluded to already, Brian, like that comes from this post 9-11, um, you know, during and post the Iraq war, um, you know, cultural moment that we had where we could not criticize the military anymore, right? It, it, there was no question. We, there was this almost like jingoistic resurgence of fever, 
right? That's not mm. like necessarily that there wasn't a market for this anymore. I would have ate stuff like this up, right? Like, so I don't yeah, think yeah. that I reject the idea that like the the people just couldn't handle something like this now. No, I think I think that this is more of a it, on on a state level. Um, I don't think the state can really tolerate um, movies that are kind of mockingly depicting the military when I think they need people to really like, you know, frankly back the military pretty hardly. Right. Because we're going into all of these wars and we're continuing these wars. Right. Like, um, mm -hmm. you know, we're in them and they're, they weren't the most popular things in the world. And um, I think one thing that uh, the DOD and the state, you know, in general just kind of learned was that, you know, that can actually be a very, um, not just like a soft tool of propaganda where like, you know, people will make these movies and just so happens just because of the, <laughs> just because of America, like directors will just kind of come up on this on their own, but they're not like producing a lot of these movies now. Right. Like, mm -hmm. um, even a lot of the superhero movies, right. Like have to be screened by the DOD and stuff. Um, you know, it, these things are so kind of entrenched like in the military industrial complex. And I don't want to say that's the only thing, but I think, you know, the, the culture and the actual attitude towards those kind of uh, movies, like just completely went away, like post nine 11. So mm -hmm. all I kind of knew of as like war movies is just, you know, a very pro us, uh, you know, tough soldier idea that is essentially just acts as a recruiting tool right for the mm -hmm. u.s military um so it was actually kind of jarring to watch these movies and not <laughs> yeah, have that i think i sure. at the top of the show i kind of alluded to it like i was like i if this is a war movie i'm expecting this to be something that is like a recruitment tool in one way or another right even if it's like in a capitalist realism way of like it being subsumed right into into a superstructure uh, I, I actually you know I don't think I've seen any like modern take, and I'm sure there might be a D movie or something that's like that, but certainly not nothing that's like screaming screening at AMC or like Regal Cinemas, right? Like sure. Um, and yeah, I, I just think it just really did change after 9/11, which is like my whole like memory of of life. So yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I I think one of the most noticeable things that people would probably take away watching these is uh yeah the depiction of the military is incompetent right as never pulling it together right and as greg alluded to earlier this wasn't necessarily new post-vietnam uh certainly world war ii post-world war ii there was this image of the military as the ultimate bureaucracy a sort of libertarian view of like this is what happens you know the government runs something right yeah. you know this kind of stuff <laughs> uh well, part of that was an acknowledgement that that was just the necessary way it was like, yeah, yeah it might drive you crazy it might be insane but it's like well yeah if you're gonna be a big military empire or prosecute a world war against you know the axis like yeah it's gonna be a little ridiculous day to day yeah, yeah. you know yeah if you have a, a company with millions of employees uh yeah. some of them are gonna be beetle baileys right but yeah. uh yeah and i and i think uh it's interesting yeah this is what i want to get at is post 2001 that fell by the wayside entirely. And I think this has to do with how the army was or military was reformed under Reagan into the all volunteer military, right? This thing that yeah, they like to yeah. say, right. but the military now is shorthand for hyper competence. 
right? Complete with its own professional um, like hierarchy and things like that with the operators at tier one, right? And mm-hmm. your, you know, officer core, you know, from various branches underneath it, right? All that kind of stuff. And it's really interesting. Like, yeah, if you want to have shorthand for a character being hyper competent in all aspects of life in a movie now, particularly an action film, you always give them a military background, you know, yeah. that's supposed to explain away why, uh, you know, Gerard Butler can both uh, kill a man with his, you know, bare hands and also hack a computer. Right. Or, yeah. you know, why Jason Statham can operate every security device known to man and also knows 15 forms of karate. Right. Well, he's he like, in the military. He's an operator. And Chris know? Pratt, too. You know, like they're yeah, like yeah. they'll take like these yeah. like formally like, you know, NBC sitcom characters like Jim from yeah. The Office or Chris Pratt. Right. And then like, you know, make them into these special operatives. Right. Who are like, mm-hmm. you know, backed by Tom Clancy and shit. Like, I mean. Truly, like, it's kind of whiplash in a way, right? Yeah. Tom Clancy, by the way, one of the key villains of this. Yeah. 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 Well, like, even when you see not even your hero characters, but just, like, the nameless, like, military coming in to do an operation alongside your heroes or something, it's not like a chaotic firefight. It's like a precision executed, like, you know, uh, assault, like, with all the tactical tactical gear and the and like moving around corners like in a really like specific way you know like yeah yeah uh, jumping out of planes or something like uh you know or they're just superheroes like or or they're just straight up like you know uh like fantasy superheroes that like use the real u.s army as their uh at their disposal too and like no for sure and like this definitely i think like 9-11 9-11 is a major major dividing line, but I think it goes, it it, it definitely mm-hmm. starts before that because like, okay, so starting from during the war to for decades after, certainly Fox, but other people put out World War II movies every fucking year through to the 70s, you know? Mm-hmm. That kind of died off. Now, in 2001, we got on HBO Band of Brothers, now they had done uh, this, you know, Spielberg had produced and direct. He did um, a few years earlier. He did uh, the first like big World War Two movie in a while, uh, which was Saving Private Ryan. And that movie, like most movies, um, was like most of these. The history of World War Two movies was basically about like regular guys, um, like you know, who were just like uh doing their thing in the war like and always had like some kind of like oh i can't believe i'm here kind of uh element to it i guess to some extent uh saving private ryan is like this too and that they are so they're the old movies were never about this with those guys are rangers and they're sent on this mission behind enemy lines right now that i'm thinking about it and they've got even a super spiffy sniper guy right Mm -hmm. and they're the guys the they're guys who've been in the war since like uh, the U.S. got in in like North Africa, like f- three years earlier or something. That's not what most World War Two movies are like. They're like they're about like the mass of American men who just like, oh, you know, or like this is my first I'm coming in at this part of the war for the first time. And like, wow, this is crazy. Like, this is just this stuff. We're just like regular guys like doing this nameless part of the war or something. Now, Band of Brothers comes out before 9-11 this comes out in 2001 and it's about the closest thing that 
America has to operators in that war. It's about the airborne and one of the most decorated units, like as immortalized in Ambrose's book from the, I think from the early nineties, like uh, about, you know, this, uh, this crap, this elite unit, you know? Um, so this stuff comes before, and I think it has to do with like what you guys have talked about the, the betrayal narrative, part of the betrayal narrative of how, you know, the, the conservative memory of Vietnam is that, you know, the, the soldiers over there, uh, who were doing their noble counterinsurgency were stabbed in the back by sure by the politicians and the commanders, but also the culture at large. Right. And mm. I think at least part of the betrayal narrative is, was sort of elevated to like official, um, mainstream political like beltway status as Vietnam syndrome where we lost the Vietnam war and that has got America feeling down about itself, American military feeling down about itself. And that means we're vulnerable to repeat it because really this is where the betrayal narrative comes in part. It's like the circular thing. Well, part of why we lost Vietnam and are in have the Vietnam syndrome is because of Vietnam syndrome, because we all had a bad attitude about it and and didn't think we could win, right? Mm-hmm. This is the betrayal part. It doesn't actually make sense. It's stupid. It's this conservative, idealistic view, like we talked earlier about, like, people... It's because people are pissed off about the war that we're losing, or it's because people are making art that they're pissed off about the war, that is why it ended. This is all backwards, right? But I think a lot of people in the military in the ruling class felt for a long time that you had to uh, not just like win some more wars, like to invigorate the America's fighting spirit by invading Panama, but like, uh, but also stamp out the negative portrayals of uh, the American military, because that was what was going to keep us from winning the next Imperial war was movies like mash or something, you know, this is stupid, but I think it's part of what people believed. Yeah, and I and I think there's another sort of side thing that kind of ties into this that uh, Munya you get to experience live and in the flesh recently, which was the monument craze that started essentially in the '90s, which was this, there was mm-hmm. this idea of let's build a Vietnam War Memorial in Washington D.C. The uh, famously the architect came up with this idea of like a very understated blends in with the uh environment monument that was just the names of the dead american soldiers of course leaving off any uh vietnamese right because it would take a wall that would circle washington many times to kind of do that and you'd have to care about them in any way right but either way there was a huge outcry from right-wingers and nationalists about this it led to the creation of a hilarious statue that they demanded be built on the site uh, showing a white officer in his uh, black and Latino uh, <laughs> uh, uh, privates below him, naturally uh, leading a heroic, you know, in a somewhat heroic uh, war pose. But the thing is, is all those other war mon- monuments you saw, uh, Munia, right there in that area, are all also post that Vietnam War memorial. So the Korean War, yeah, the Korean War one, yeah, is post Vietnam memorial nice- as well. The World War II Memorial, which is the the most sort of... The Tom uh, Hanks Memorial. Yeah, built in 2004. That World War II Memorial is not from World War II. That World War II Memorial is about 9-11, and it's about recapturing 
this idea of a glorious American uh, war machine, right? It's it's not accidental. It looks like a Roman monument, right? Yeah. Uh, they're trying to, these are people who would actively talk about recreating the Pax Americana and all this kind of stuff, right? These are fucking nerds, right? And they created this shit. Tom, a- Tom Hanks led the charge on building that as the, yeah. who, because he became the like, the guy as the star of Saving Private Ryan and the producer of Band of Brothers was like the World War II celebrity. And he was mm-hmm. like, yeah, we got to we got to remember these guys. Yeah. And so in a lot of ways, you know, uh, culturally, you know, we've regressed quite a bit, you know, when it comes to our understanding of American imperialism of war, etc., uh, just broadly as a mainstream culture. And that was not done accidentally. That was done from above. And I think as we get further and in, in the myth, we start talking about the 80s and 90s and stuff. We'll, and certainly the 2000s, we will uh, get into that a little bit more. Well, it's been great talking movies guys uh obviously you know as we've experienced off mic on this show many times we could keep going for hours and hours but uh i think we got well before before we sum it up i think we should just spend brian you and i uh, just 25 minutes talking about kelly's heroes (laughs) (laughs) by the way uh, for people you know if you watch southern comfort and you have a good time if you watch mash and have a good time Watch Kelly's Heroes. It's the World War II movie that's also, wink, wink, kind of about Vietnam. Uh, Totally worth watching. Uh, It's great. Also stars Donald Sutherland, who I forgot to mention this, was on the Fuck the Army tour. You know, so Donald Sutherland, uh, lifetime cool guy in my book. Uh, He rocks. The Sun Kiefer, you know, 50-50 on. But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, hey, like the apples. Like all base yeah. dad sons, yeah. right? You know, yeah, exactly. all the sons of base dads, they're kind of, you could go either way. The father should not be blamed for the sins of his son. <laughs> but anyways. <Nope. laughs> all right, everybody. We will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey gang, Brian here. Ending the Myth will be taking a brief two-month break, but we'll be back with more depressing history about how we got here in May. We're going to be picking up uh, with Chapter 13 of Grand into the End of the Myth. That's more, more, more. And as you might have guessed from the title, we're going to be talking 1980s, baby. So we'll see everybody in May.